This is an ABC podcast. James Crawley grew up in an idyllic little town at the end of the Great Ocean Road in Victoria, in a place called Killarney, with bluestone cottages and, appropriately enough, a big Irish community. James's parents, Richard and Carol, were bohemians who ran a bed and breakfast there. James had a beautiful childhood that was filled with music and nature and creativity. And life in the family home was like an ongoing circus conducted by James's wildly extroverted dad. His dad was relentlessly positive. And so when James's mum, Carol, became very ill, he refused to accept the diagnosis and did everything he could to find a miracle cure. Afterwards, Richard and James were so mired in their pain they didn't know what to say to each other for years. And then at Christmas one year, James sat down and he watched 35 hours of tapes of his father talking to the camera alone about what he'd been going through. James Crawley then decided to make his own film about his family story and the startling new chapter in his dad's life. James Crawley's film is called Volcano Man. Hello, James. Hi, Richard. Tell me a bit more about this little town. You grew up near Port Ferry. It sounds lovely. Uh, it was it was beautiful, a wonderful little beach. You know, you walk down to the beach every every afternoon after school, wonderful light, great soil, grow anything. Um, it was a little bit out of out of the bigger town, quote unquote, Port Ferry. So, you know, the big get, smoke, right? The big smoke, exactly. Yeah. Put your good shirt on and, and go into Port Ferry. <laughs> um, so, you know, I'd be driven in constantly to go hang out with my mates and ride around on a BMX or whatever it was. And, but yeah, Port Ferry and Kalani and that, that part of the world in general, the shipwreck coast, you know, right. it's just a wonderful part of the world. I'm going to embarrass you now. The footage your dad took of you, I've seen in the film, you are adorable as a little kid. <laughs> you are just a really happy boy, very happy kid. Is that how you remember it, being that being that joyful and happy quite pretty much all the time? I mean, yeah. It, it, was, it was wonderful. I mean, I was very lucky in that both my parents worked from home. So, uh, you know, I'd go to school, hang out with my mates and come home and just hang out with my parents the whole time. And I'm an only child. Uh, and uh, it, it was just a wonderful, happy, idyllic childhood in the country. What did the locals make of, about your parents setting up the B&B in that, in that area, though? Yeah. Uh, well, when they first moved, we, I was born in Melbourne and they moved when I was three or so down to Kalani. I remember stubbing my toe uh, as I moved into the house. That's my first memory, I think. <laughs> anyway, but uh, when they moved to Kalani, they set up the bed and breakfast, as you say, and, you know, you get the the signage out on the highway to say bed and breakfast, you know, vacancy, and it was the first one in the area, really. Uh, you couldn't really get a coffee even in Port Ferry at this stage. And uh, they came back the next day and um, the sign had been shot up with shotguns. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I'm not sure the uh, the farmers were too keen on any of these blow-ins. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. But they won the most. Seriously, over. are you serious? The sign was shot up? Oh, yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah, a few times. We got right. it fixed, shot up again. I mean, there were, no one was ever aggressive to us or anything like that, but it was, you know, a, um, a very much a, hmm, you know, maybe let's let's not bring the city folk in, but no, they, they won them over in the end. They did, right. It must have taken a couple of years. <laughs> it, that did, it did, yeah. Who was coming to stay at the B&B that you remember coming in and out of the home? A lot of family groups, uh, obviously not a lot of, you know, business travel in that part of the world. I'm sure there was, but not that I remember. Um, there would often be other kids that would arrive and I'd try and, you know, I was very just you know, friendly, sort of, I guess, quite an outgoing kid, would try to make friends with them, try to semi-adopt them in the few days they were there probably, run around the garden, rub my bike around, that sort of thing. And what would they give people for breakfast when they came to stay? Uh, well, it w- was a uh, 
stereotypical bed and breakfast. So you would get the cooked breakfast. And, you know, I do, dad's never been a particularly early riser. Um, and you know, so for him getting up and doing him and mum doing the breakfast in the morning was, was <laughs> pretty, not, not sure it was his favorite thing to do, but they did it. Um, and they would, you know, it's all very faulty towers esque, you know, throwing, dropping the breakfast on the floor, smashing things up by mistake, you know, carrying in the tray of, of, uh, of breakfast to the guests, you know, across the other end of the, the bed and breakfast. Yeah. And I have to ask, I mean, there would have been guests who were pretty hideous at times from time to time. Do you remember? <laughs> Did you ever end up hating some of the badly behaved guests? No, I, I didn't, but I do remember um, <laughs> we had a few people who I think probably suffered for some, um, yeah, through some illness, some some uh, head illnesses, let's say, and some guy who uh, thought the whole place was haunted um, to the point where, you know, which was, which was he thought the entire house was haunted. Um, and that's fine, you know, but until he's coming over and knocking at the door at 3am telling Dad that there's someone in the room, which there, of course, wasn't. And this happened, I think, a few nights in a row and him and the, the neighbour, Danny, I think, at one point decided to play a little trick on him and, um, yeah, start up the chainsaw outside the window or something and then run away. <laughs> uh, but no, no, no. no. It's just a wonderful part of the world and people love coming there um, and it's a very very beautiful place. On the scale of 1 to 10 at gregariousness, your dad's right up there pushing into the 11s, I reckon. Uh, he's off the, off the charts. And, and did that work for him as the host of a and b or were people alarmed by his, by he, his extrovertism? So he still runs... Um, uh, well, I'm not sure it's a and b anymore. The breakfast is in there. You cook it yourself now. Right, okay. But um, he's a great host. People, I mean, the amount of people that come back just to see him is huge. He's a fantastic, fantastic orator, fantastic open man and a great host. Right. So his charm is part of the attraction. He's incredibly the charming. He's, yes. And, and what kind of uh, old school explosive fun could you have growing <laughs> up in the country like that? James? Well, that's one of the big pluses about uh, living in the country, I guess. You can have as much loud stuff as you want. Um, we would do various things, set off uh, solid fuel rockets all the time, you know, build them ourselves and shoot them up off into the sky. He'd, one of the school projects, you know, he would make a, he made, made a full-blown um, hovercraft that I could stand on once. Yeah, which was pretty incredible. You know, everyone brings in their little project and Dad, you know, brings the trailer and the car and the hovercraft in. So, you know, very much ne never anything done by halves, that's for sure. Yeah. Your dad had been an exceptionally good rock photographer. Tell me about the picture that sort of loomed over you every morning as you had your breakfast cereal. That's right, yeah. it's uh, He did a lot of rock photography back in the 70s and a lot of photography just in general. He had a um, uh, one-man show at the NGV when he was 21 all around St Kilda and... Um, and the rock photography, as you mentioned, and I was sitting there, you know, I'd eat my breakfast every morning in front of Mick Jagger, this wonderful shot of Mick Jagger on stage of uh, Kuyong in the 70s when they played in Melbourne. And what's he doing in the picture? Oh, you know, it's, it's Mick in the flushes of youth. He's got his elbows up over his head, his tongue sticking out, he's piercing straight through the lens. Dad was right up at the front of the stage. And it's, it's, it's a great shot. It sure is. It's an astonishing photo. And it's got this kind of hot white light that just speaks of a sweaty rock festival on a hot summer's day. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, they were doing two shows a day, I believe, um, for that tour. So, you know, God knows where they got the energy from. Actually, I probably do know where they got the energy from. But... How did he get that photo? It's so close in performance. He made a distinct choice to go there for that show because of the light. You know, it was great light, as you, as you said. Um, he faked a press pass. Um, well, to, he forged one. He forged one, so he says, called uh, Blue Meanie Press, he tells everyone, which was very 70s. Um, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, sort of conned his way in, scampered past the security and got right 
I, uh, he was actually sent by a friend of photo from that gig and you can see dad in front of the stage. He got literally right to the front, the speaker cones. Pretty cool. It's one of the best Rolling Stones photos I've ever seen in my life, I think. It's an astonishing shot. Who was he able to sell it to? He sold it to Molly Meldrum the next day. So, yeah, he uh, he took this shot. He went home. He worked all night developing it in the dark room. He knew he had a good one. And uh, he, yeah, sold it the next day to Molly Meldrum's Go Set and it was on the cover of, of Go Set with... Uh, the, the Greatest Show on Earth was the cover, I believe. And did he still remain in love with the Rolling Stones when you were a kid growing up? Oh, he's, he's been obsessed with music for forever, really. Yeah, I mean, again, living in the country, loud things, not a problem, just blasting rock the entire time or blues, not just the Stones, but a whole bunch of... He's got, he's got great music taste, really, and just, just loves it all. Um, as soon as he heard I was coming on this show with you, he made me listen to all the uh, All Stars <laughs> tracks once over again. What? And, yep. <laughs> he loves them. <laughs> <laughs> did, did you think he was really cool as a kid or was he embarrassing with all that outgoing, that outgoing fun sort of nature of his? It actually changed. I, I mean, he was great when I was... Uh, I mean, he's still great. That's not what I mean. I, I was not embarrassed initially. And then when I got a little bit older and start, you know, you start going to secondary school. And, and you want to be cool. And you want to be cool. Mm. Um, and, you know, he's, uh, you know, in the country town with his sports car dropping me off at school. And I don't want him to do that. I just, you know, everyone's, you know, you know how it works in the country. You just don't, you just kind of play it cool. You want to be super Don't talk normal, yourself actually. up. Yeah, yeah, you've got to be super yeah. under, the, yeah. under the radar. And uh, so I, that was uh, his eccentricity was slightly harder for me to wrap my head around when I'm trying to be, you know, the cool, you know, teenager, <laughs> which I did unsuccessfully probably. You mentioned that he he didn't just do rock photography. He was he also liked to do other kinds of photography. What was his real specialty? It's, real, it's just a great documentarian of life, really. Great journalistic, I guess, um, capturer, I guess you'd say. So when he moved from England to... Melbourne, he started taking photos around St Kilda and had a show at the NGV, you know, when he was in his 20s. So of everyday people? Yeah, of everyday people, of street people, of, um, you know, Sharpies and this is some great shots that he managed to take. And then when they moved to the country, um, he took, I think, 10,000 negatives just all around the Western Districts and um, got, a, got a grant uh, and made a book called The State of Common Life, which was, yeah, just people in their environments. And he's just been always great at capturing. He, he's such a magnanimous and lovely person that people just feel comfortable I think in front of him with the camera that's why he's able to great take great shots I mean he'll t he'll say himself he's not a great technical photographer but he's a great great conversationalist and how much of your own early life was documented by him on video and by and by stills camera uh literally well from negative you know nine months through to today really he filmed me being born you know which oh, is oh really he was oh, there yeah. right. he was there right there and you know this is not iphone stuff obviously this is big cameras um and you know not not easy to conceal i had a mate come round to my house once uh and he's walking around looking at all the walls and all the photos like did you do you have a brother that died? I was like, what? It's like a shrine to this kid. No, it's me. It's, it's me. I'm the kid. It's just photos of me everywhere. So, yeah, every, like, I, it was just normal to me. Everything was captured, absolutely everything. So this kind of gregarious bohemian life you had in, in country Victoria, how different was this life to the family life your dad had had growing up in England? Yeah. I mean, he had a wonderful, wonderful family, has a wonderful family, um, those that are still around. Uh, but it was it was different. His dad worked in the, well, not the family business, but in the same line of business that his father had worked for, which was 
my dad's grandfather was quite instrumental in the beginnings of Faber and Faber with T.S. Eliot, which is the, you know, amazing publishing company that went on to wow. do some incredible stuff. Yeah, so very sort of English literary which is importance. And I was T.S. Eliot a friend of the family? Yeah, he was. He was. He um, when my great grandfather retired, he gifted him a lawnmower. <laughs> As you do back then. T.S. Eliot gave your grandfather a lawnmower. Yeah, that he um, he did, and that has an unpublished poem still stuck on it uh, that they got you know etched into a plaque and stuck on this uh, on this lawnmower. <laughs> has the poem made it into the collected works of T.S. Eliot published? <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I know that the lawnmower made itself uh, made its way to a lawnmower museum. Of course, there is one in, you know in the UK, <laughs> so it's, I believe it's there now. Did he encourage you to become a filmmaker, which you are today? Yeah. I, funnily enough, I actually found this hard to deal with. You know, most parents would say, here's what I think you should do. Here's the roadmap. I think you should do this degree and, you know, whatever. And you'd kind of make, you, make your own decision. My dad was like, you just do whatever it is you want, anything. Do whatever you want, which is obviously wonderful now looking back on it. But at the time I was like, I, 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 but I don't know. It's like, just do whatever makes you happy. And that was always um, and what he still says to this day. So he was extremely supportive of me wanting to take photos, wanting to film stuff. You know, I was the ratty little kid down at the skate park with the video camera filming everyone while my mates tried to do tricks and, you know, figuring out how to learn Final Cut and, you know, cutting things together. And, yeah, no, he, he was very supportive of... He's supportive of anything, absolutely anything I do. Tell me about the advice he gave you when you brought home a homework assignment in journalism. Oh, <laughs> that's right. He... um. Yes, it's, I, I think everyone has a moment where they realise that their parents are just as fallible as anyone else. You know, you, you spend your whole life, you know, thinking what they say is sort of, you know, law. And that moment came for you during journalism during, homework? During journalism homework, it <laughs> Why? did. Why? Well, the, uh, the assignment was uh, what is the difference between, you know, hard news and soft news? And we had to write a hard news article, which is obviously just the facts, no opinion. Let's just say what happened, you know, in the series of events and write it down. And I picked... Uh, picked the you know world event that was happening of the time, wrote down the facts and showed Dad, and he said, "Oh yeah, no, but this is this is bullshit. You know, you've got to say this. This is exactly what you know. This is what they should have done, and this is why the world is a you know terrible place and why war's awful. And you know, here's what you should do." So I wrote this whole opinion piece and failed it right. because um, it, was, it was it was it was an opinion. Right, you wandered over to the op-ed column. Yeah, exactly. Right. I did. I wandered. I was like, "Dad, are you yeah. sure this is right? This is like this hard news thing. Why I'm trying to work out what that is." No, 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 no. It's right. This. So, um, yeah, and everyone has these realisations, I think, at some point. We haven't talked about your mum yet, Carol. Mm. What was she like through your eyes as a kid growing up? Well, lovely human, you know, very much the counterpoint to Dad, who is extremely outgoing. Uh, She was very quiet. She's one of uh, eight kids from country Victoria, from Hamilton, and um, all of the, uh, everyone from that, I've got, you know, 17 cousins on that side and, uh, some of us, or most of us really, have the Ryan calmness, as it's called. That was her maiden name. And it's just incredibly calm. You know, something could go uh, go wrong and she would just be there slowly just subduing things and really, you know, it, it just they were the perfect team, I guess, in that way. I, I, it's probably hard for a, a son or a daughter to perceive such things, but watching your film it becomes very apparent very quickly how deeply in love your dad was with her and, and, and right from the get-go. Was it a very powerful attachment that was made quite quickly between the two? 
it was. And, you know, obviously I hear, I've heard my whole life, you know, the stories that dad has told me about meeting mom and this, you know, bolt, light, lightning bolt of attraction that they had. He opens the door and wow, there she is. And I always just thought he was kind of, you know, embellishing a bit because he loves a story. But then after I made the film and spoke to my other family members about this who were living with them at the time, um, it's all true. It was. It does happen. It does happen. Yeah. I, I didn't think it did, but it did for them. Love at first sight, definitely. You're an only child. Did your parents want more kids? They did. They did. You know, they um, they they wanted another kid. They and they couldn't sadly have another one naturally, um, for for various health reasons that you know mum mum was going through at the time. They didn't really know what was happening, but all they knew is that they couldn't have more kids. Uh, so they decided to adopt and go through the intercountry adoption process. So they, the intercountry adoption uh, program was incredibly onerous and as it should be, you mm. know, complicated thing to go through to you know, the checks and balances and making sure, you know, you're the right people to be able to adopt and, you know, multiple trips overseas to the Philippines. And we were eventually assigned a, a little girl. Did you see the picture of the little girl? We saw, yeah, we saw the photo. A little, she was, I think, 18 months old, a baby really, or even younger than that. Wonderful. What a joy to see and they said, let's do it. And they went through, so this is now the kid's been given assigned essentially and you go through the formal application process. And how old were you at this time? I would have been 10. How, what did you think about that? that? Did you oh. like the idea or did you have mixed feelings no, about it? No, I had it mixed feelings, definitely. You know, I had it all going on. You were the little prince? I was the little prince. Yeah. I had everything. I had the dad who'd make me hovercrafts. I had, you know, I had the <laughs> <laughs> had it all going on. I had my parents at home all day. I had my mates. Mm. And I was, you know, probably worried about, you know, halving my intake of Christmas presents each year, <laughs> the, the sort of stuff that kids would worry about. But, of course, you know, after thinking about it more, I started getting into the idea and, you know, wow, imagine having someone else around. And I do remember having the lovely thoughts of, oh, maybe she'll be at school and I can be the kind of, you know, older brother that can, you know, protect her in a way. So what happened to the plan? Well, what, what happened sadly was that it's, and again, this is stuff that I thought dad had kind of um, aligned conveniently to make it more dramatic, but it is entirely true what happened after making the film. She was uh, on the, the day or the week that we were given the photo of the little girl, my mum had a, a checkup and it was discovered that she had cervical cancer and that meant that they couldn't adopt. So if you have an illness of that um, magnitude at the time, they, they don't allow you to adopt. And for dad, I think, and mum in many ways, it was like losing a child, I think. Oh, devastating. Did they keep that from you, their devastation, or did you sort of see that? No, they kept it from me, for sure. This is all stuff I've found out more recently. But I, I, I knew it was bad, but again, it was just sort of, oh no, that's not that's not happening now. That's um that's 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 not a thing now. We're focused on mum going through it. She's got to go to the hospital a little bit now. And um she had to go through radiotherapy and, and that sort of thing. Um but the good news was at that point that the cancer was dealt with. We couldn't adopt, but there was a couple of years of treatment and it was gone. Kids are pretty receptive nonetheless to underlying emotional undercurrents in a, in a house. Did you really perceive something devastating had happened, something had gone very badly wrong in the house? Do you remember that? N look, probably not at that time. I mean, Dad, like, Dad was such an overtly positive person and still is that it was all very much here's how things are going to be fixed. Everything's great. Life is great. Mum is great. We're just going to get through this little blip and away we go. And I think that's, you know, he has, and he's an incredible optimist. 
And that's definitely the way that the lens I had that I took on from him, I think. And how did your mum come out of that uh, procedure? She, it was a success, all things considered. We were told the cancer was gone and then it was back to life, albeit I'm still the only child and they, they couldn't have the second kid, but it was just back on to, uh, to normal life for some years. It probably made you even more precious to them if that's even possible, I wonder. I, yeah. I wonder. I mean, you know, every child is obviously precious, but, yeah, I can't imagine what that would be like going through and, you know, and everyone is surrounded by loss in various ways and, yeah, Dad had a, 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 few, a few things in that area that, that knocked him around. Yeah, well, when you were 12, your uncle Anati came for a visit from England. Yeah, well, I mean, we had a, I've, he, he has a brother and a sister and they came out to visit. We, we had a great relationship. They're great fun, Pat and Janie. And they came out, they stayed with us for six weeks. We did a wonderful trip in Australia. They stayed with us in the country. We travelled around Australia and all this sort of stuff. And uh, they flew out via New Zealand and they went out for a swim and had a great time and went out again the, the second night and thought, oh, let's go out a bit further. You know, and they're, they're British, they've not grown up on the beach, they don't really get dangers of the ocean and they were swept out to sea in a rip. And uh, a surfer managed to save my auntie but had my uh, uncle's very sadly drowned, which was, yeah, a huge shock. You know, he wasn't, he was, you know, not even 50, I don't think. And he was swept out to sea, not recovered. And at the time they would say that if the body wasn't recovered in uh, seven days. He's sort of committed to the deep, I guess. So dad flew over, obviously, as soon as this had happened. His auntie, his sister was there. Seven days passes. He's not found. Janie flies back to England. Dad flies back to Australia. And as dad says, uh, his brother was always a bit of a joker, so he was found on the eighth day. Horrible. And so dad flew back again to, to New Zealand. Janie was back in England, so couldn't come back immediately again. And was it his job to identify the body? It was his body? job to identify the body after eight days in the ocean, which, you know, his, his younger brother, which must have been incredibly traumatic. Um, and, again, this is all stuff I've found out since. I, the, the version I remember as a kid was just uh, dad going quiet for a, a moment and then it was back to full full bore, full bore positive Richard. And that was him, I think, trying to overtake the grief in some way. Has he got a philosophy on that when it comes to when life hands you terrible things? This is my observation. of. I mean, he would say onwards and upwards in every anything that happens or constantly. He'll say it probably every day. I think um, when he's handed delta hand that, you know, is so optimal, <laughs> his idea is to one-up it and go one better. So when his brother died, uh, I guess the atypical reaction for him was to buy a, a red Ferrari. <laughs> So he bought a red Ferrari. Bought a red Ferrari, not an expensive one, mind you. You know, this is a you know, the probably was that or a Land you know, a secondhand Land Rover. So not a not a flashy new one or anything, but nevertheless, a red a red Ferrari. Ferrari. Yeah, right. which he still has and sounds great and is awesome, but um, not the not 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 how you know. And, and he he says this as well. It's it just when you're in the throes of <laughs> grief, nothing makes sense. And to him, that did make sense at the time. And, you know, I think he tried, justified it in that, you know, it would be in some way, some way he would think about his brother when he's hooning around the countryside. How were you coping with all this? Was there anything to cope with? Did you really think there was anything to cope with in the wake of all this? Not then, no. No, I was, I was, it was all very much shielded from me, which is the right thing to do probably. I was only 
12. You know, I didn't really know anything. And then suddenly dad's got a red Ferrari. Suddenly dad's got a red Ferrari, which I thought was great. And then, you know, I turned 13, 14 and started thinking it's less great actually because, you know, (laughs) it's not the right car to be dropped off in, you know, in country Victoria. (laughs) It is very much let me out two blocks prior. Thanks, dad. And how did he drive it? Was he driving it like a hoon? Oh, I mean, no. I mean, look, he he loved Top Gear, put it that way. Right. So, yeah. (laughs) And how was your mum's health at this point? It was, uh, it was, she didn't have cancer. The cancer was gone. She, it was good. It, things were great. I was at secondary school. That's where you met your wife. I did. High school sweetheart. High That's school amazing. sweetheart. It's yeah. I mean, you know, we're not even 18 yet, you know, and it's, so it's all very juvenile and, you know, adolescent <laughs> love, I guess, but it was, it was fantastic. We, we just got on so well. And that was that. I mean, it's strangely not too dissimilar to, to my mum and dad in, in many ways. So when you went away to university, your mum got another diagnosis that wasn't so great. Yeah, so the cancer came back, sadly, this time in a different spot and she had it in her sinuses. Uh, So she had a squamous cell carcinoma is the technical term, I guess, but basically just a a nasty thing in in her face, which was not much fun. And um, the uh, prognosis they were given was horrible in that, the option was a huge disfiguring surgery, take portions of her tongue out and hor- look horribly disfigured for the rest of her life, and then a 5% chance of survival in five years. And I think, I believe from what Dad said, the way that was communicated was not particularly great, I think, through the, through the medical system at the time. Um, I'm, I'm sure it's got, they've got a lot better at that sort of thing you know, in more recent years. But, yeah, it was just it was a terrible experience for all and not something that mum wanted to go through, that sort of surgery. So it was a choice for her between disfigurement and likely death and certain death, in other words. Yeah, which, which, they, didn't, which they didn't accept. Mum very much was going to fix it and Dad was very much a vocal, uh, you know, proponent of that and they decided to try and effectively fix it themselves as there was no conventional treatment available. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. To find out more, just head to abc.net.au slash conversations. James, you were saying your parents responded to that terrible diagnosis for your mum with a desperate desire to find their own cure for your mother's cancer. How did they go about that? When, when they were given this prognosis, Dad, I, I do remember this, he, he basically didn't sleep for three or four days uh, and was just madly researching anything. And he found incredibly uh, controversial, but, you know, found some um, literature stating that there was certain remedies that could be made out of a thing that grew in our garden. That's what he was reading. That's what he was reading. And that's what he did. He tested on himself first and almost killed himself because he got the uh, dosage wrong. But he uh, said one of the side effects is um, all the blood rushes to your extremities. So he gave himself such a big dose that he had a heart on for three weeks or something, he said. (laughs) (laughs) So, anyway... But yeah, look, he he got the he got the uh, viscosity correct, uh, and then you know was giving very small amounts of it to mum, and in, in their mind that was uh, that was working, 
And did you know this was going on? Yeah, I knew this was going on. I'm, you know, I'm 18, 19, something like that at this point. So I'm, you know, very much aware of what's happening. And, um, but the overarching opinion and direction from mum and dad was that everything was going to work. It was going to work? It was going to work. She was going to live. And did you believe that? I didn't really know what to believe at that point. And I would, I mean, I mean, if your dad says she's going to live, of course you're going to think that's, I mean, what a great thought. You know, your mum's your mum's going to be around for the rest of your life. Fantastic. Of course I wanted that. And that's what I believed. And that's, you know, they, they went over to Germany to um, try some other treatment. There's, you know, various cancer clinics over there that do alternative things. I went over there to see them. And I remember there was one point when they were over there in Germany where there was, it was for a moment I remember looking at Dad and I could just see that maybe he was thinking that things weren't going to work out. But then straight after that it was, no, everything's going to be fine. She's going to make it. It's going to be great. As you're saying this, I'm sort of feeling all this tension that if I'd been watching that I think I would have thought, oh, dear, this is going to... When the bad thing comes, it's going to be really bad then um, because no one will be ready for it. Were you thinking that or were you just still wanting, living in, wanting to live in this world very understandably of uh, magical thinking? Absolutely, I was, yeah. I was definitely in the, uh, yeah, in that suspending disbelief really or, or suspending what, what, what the reality of what might happen. And I think to those around us it was probably, you know, slightly more obvious what potentially could happen. That's, and that's what mum wanted as well. She, what, she was just as positive as dad. She didn't want to talk about the fact that she might die. She wanted to, 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 be, to be positive and that's what she wanted. So obviously who am I to go against that? So when she did die, were you, you wouldn't have been in any way prepared for that? No, it was a huge shock um, and it was a huge shock for dad as well because he'd spent, you know, the last few years telling himself that she was going to be okay and I think, and this is that this has been the, the thing that we've spoken most about since making the film and me being able to articulate some other feelings that I've realised I felt then that I couldn't articulate at the time. But I think for me that kind of prolonged me being able to deal with, you know, the loss of your mum, which is a very normal thing that happens, you know, for everyone really at some point. It's just interesting how other people's way of dealing with things can affect you know, each other and everyone has a different way of, of going through it. My dad's way was is one very valid way. It's not my way. And I think in hindsight that um, was was where the, uh, the friction was. I think when you encounter a premature death like that, there's a really strong urge to shake your fist at the sky, to be angry at something. Mm. Is that how you felt? I didn't feel anything. I think I – obviously, I, well, that's, that's not – entirely true of course I felt incredibly affected by it but I I think I did what's typical of many Aussie blokes is I just just went mute you know stuffed it all down tried to basically ignore it I moved to Sydney so there wasn't wasn't rage there was numbness there was numbness I'd completely absolutely numbness yes numbing out you know I just it felt a bleep <laughs> and what was going on with your dad he did two things. One, he bought a new camera, a digital camera, and started filming himself in these moments of grief from basically the week after she died. And were you aware of that at the time? No. Um, I knew he was. I knew he'd bought the camera and he was doing something, but, again, I just didn't want anything to do with it. I, you know, who wants to be part of that? I certainly didn't. Again, I was just 
trying to be as far away from any feeling, <laughs> any feeling uh, of grief that I that I could really. So I was just he's just being himself, dealing with something, dealing with his own grief in his own way, and I'll I'll give him the space to do that. You call your film Volcano Man, mm. and that's partially a reference to the fact you kind of live on a the rim of an extinct volcano, or he does down there in um, near Port Ferry. But, of course, he's a volcano man with his emotions as well, feels these things very powerfully. Were you frightened of what he was going through? Yes. Everyone deals and has reactions to, you know, losing your life partner of 30 years, obviously a huge life-altering event to go through. So I was worried that he might turn to booze or turn to something, you know, less constructive. Turns out what he turned to was, was this camera, was all these self-confessionals that he filmed and also wanting to become a rock star. <laughs> but you didn't know that at the time. You didn't no. know he was doing any of this. You I must didn't... have been very worried about him. Uh, again, I didn't... I was probably... I was just... I, I, didn't know what to th- I didn't know what to think or feel at that point. I had moved to Sydney to get away from that and try and work out things on my own, but in hindsight probably didn't work out anything. I was just, you know, trying to be a, a young man, trying to work out who I was, trying to, you know... Started, started working in advertising, all trying this stuff. Trying to survive, stuff. I think, maybe is the thing too, trying to survive and figure out how you were going to have a life. Yeah, and just figure out who, who you are. How much later was it when you got an inkling of what your dad had been going through? I think about, about five years later, I was back at his house in, in Tower Hill near Port Ferry and uh, over Christmas, I, I, you know, great happy time of year, decide to watch, you know, 30-odd hours of my dad grieving. Where did you find these tapes? Oh, he, he volunteered them. He gave them to you. He to gave see. them to me. He wanted me to see them. He was like, "Oh, you, sh- you should see them. It's just you know, no one's captured this sort of thing before. Like it's you know, it's 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 a thing that needs to be seen." And I think for him, it gave the pain that he was feeling a reason and a point to exist. So it kind of validated like, it. He was asking you to look at them as a kind of a like as a creative project almost, a, right? As a filmmaker rather yeah. than as a son. Yeah. Uh, I mean, prob- yes, yes. I would say probably both, but yeah, definitely it, it was more. Um, you should, you should, you should look at them and see if you think there's something there. I wonder if you thought, and maybe you thought that, if you looked at them as a kind of a filmmaker, you'd have the emotional distance you might need in order to be able to see them. Well, yeah, I didn't want to watch them. That's for sure. No, I was still in, at that point in the let's just push it away as far as I can scenario, but I did watch them, and again, felt nothing for for a couple of weeks. But once it's all seeped in, you know, I saw this whole other side to my dad of him uh, in many ways admitting defeat along the way of, of this grief and, and, and accepting the fact that in his own way that, that she had gone. And that's something that we hadn't really spoken about before. And I was what I was looking for was I guess just the, um, the fact that she'd died <laughs> and that that had happened and we had accepted that. And how was he talking on these tapes? Uh, incredibly, I mean, I'd never seen anything like it. And that's where the filmmaker inside me went, wow, okay, this genuinely is, is stuff that doesn't happen. No one's perhaps really done it in this way before. Uh, he, he's talking completely candidly about what he's feeling. He's talking about suicide at points. He's talking about how confused he's feeling. He's talking about how angry he is. And he's not talking about it, about it academically. He's talking about it in the moment of emotion. So, you know, it is 3am and he's talking about it and he's incredibly upset and visibly upset. Um, it, yeah, it was very, not surprisingly, pretty hard to watch. How was he looking? What state was he in? Terrible. Hair everywhere, blurry-eyed, completely hollow-eyed and, and distraught. But you would see these 
moments throughout the footage where he's grappling with the reality of it and he's trying to pull himself out of it, which I'm glad to say he did. Yeah, how were you feeling about him watching that? Did you feel tenderness? It's a hard question to answer because I think the way I work is just numbness until I have the space and time to work out how I feel. I mean, I felt incredibly, uh, you know, I wanted to give him a hug after seeing that. I mean, you know, to see the, the full extent of what he'd gone through was pretty raw. I don't think I fully appreciated how tricky it would be losing, you know, your wife of, of 30 years. I was trying to figure out how to lose a mum and he was trying to figure out how to, how to lose a life partner. It's so hard to have perspective on that when a marriage of 30 years has been brought to an end in those conditions. I think if you're part of that marriage, you, you don't, you're not even really very aware at all of how connected you are to that other person. You've been together for all that time. And I think for kids, your, your parents' marriage, if they are indeed married, you know, um, can seem like, I don't know, like a planet. It's mm. so big. It's hard to sort of get your own head around it, isn't it? Absolutely. And, you know, and, and just the way they operate as a duo is, is the version you have. And suddenly that other leg of the stool is, is not there. You know, I'd never seen Dad cry before, ever, until the night that she died. You know, to see this suddenly, this complete flip of who your father is. And everyone goes through this, everyone goes through this in, in a way, somehow. And for me, it was then. And you see that they are just as vulnerable and just as, you know, fallible as, as, as anyone else. So, James, how did you find out your dad after three years of, of this mm. had begun a new chapter in his life? Uh, the way I found out about it was a phone call. Jamie you got to come down. you got to come back home. I've, I've got a gig. A gig? A gig. What do you mean? I've started a band. Oh, okay. Well, uh, called the, we're called the Black Belts. It's going to be awesome. Why are they called the Black Belts? <laughs> so we, we did a lot of martial arts when I was a kid and Dad did it with us. We did it as a whole family, really. Anyway, he's got a black belt. Um, he does? He right. does. He does. He, um, one of the other guitarists, Dave Gibb, he's a, a, he still runs an MMA gym in, um, in Warrnambool. And he's a, you know, he was a black belt. Everyone so they are was a, black belts. They're, they're black belts, a lot of them. Right. So yeah. that's why they're called the black they're belts. They're called the black belts. Makes sense, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, they, um, and he, dad just loved punk. Loved it. Loved Iggy Pop. Loved the whole thing. So he says, you've got to come down. We're playing on the green. Now, the green in Port Ferries is a sleepy little town, 1,500 people or so then. And uh, the green is the, the village green, you know, in the middle of the town, um, just gra grassy area with a little low stage. And it was, uh, they do um, concerts there. People, you know, there was Irish dancing and there was, you know, other little sort of community acts. And this is 2pm in the afternoon. And Dad says, oh, I've bought a new uh, sound system for the band. We're going to blow the effing windows out of the, uh, of the ice creamery across the road. He's, uh, he's how old at this point? He's 64. Two, 60, right. 65 or something right. like that. So, right. you know, he's, he's, he's my dad. He's getting to grandpa age and he decides to, yeah, he's going to play this gig at, on the green and blow out the windows of Rebecca's, the, the ice creamery. I come down, I, I, I see it and it's wild. It's after a, a, a group has done some Irish dancing, so yeah, <laughs> all these little kids, very cute. Right. And then the black belts come on and try to tear the stage a new one, basically. Right, is he doing Iggy Pop on He's stage? doing Iggy Pop and he's, um, you know, I Want to Be Your Dog, Yeah. great song. He rips his shirt off, again, 2pm, 
Like Kiki. Yeah, Kiki. Right. Uh, he's dancing around, he's yelling, the band's great. <laughs> and, you know, he's he's uh, he's really going for it. He gets down on all fours and he's crawling around the stage, barking like a dog, doing push-ups, <laughs> all this sort of stuff. Push-ups. Push-ups. Right. He's doing high kicks. He's yeah. doing whatever he wants. And then he's hidden, I didn't know this, he's hidden a, um, a cow thigh bone behind the behind the stage and he pulls his bone out and starts gnawing it on stage and, you know, there's these kids who are, like, eating ice creams and I'm like, what is going on? This is crazy. So that was my first viewing of the Black Belts. But he he wanted to become a rock star. He sat up one night in bed and said, I want to be a rock star. And he'd spent, you know, his entire life being behind the camera, photography and uh, everything that he was doing. And he's like, no, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be the subject now. I want to be in front of it. And that's what he wanted to do. And that's how he pulled himself, I think, out of, uh, gave his life purpose again. You know, the thing, if you're going to be like, trying to be like Iggy Pop on stage, even though your dad is, what, in his mid-60s, he still is and looks younger than Iggy Pop <laughs> in his current incarnation. <laughs> yes. So, so there, is, there is that to be said about that, isn't it? There, I mean, look, he's, you know, uh, positivity is the, is the spice <laughs> of life perhaps, but it works for him, that's for sure. He's definitely young at heart. He's definitely young at heart. So what do you think of this method he's hit upon to pull himself out of that three-year period of grief? Well, you know, coming home and finding the entire garage boarded up and turned into a sound studio and... Um, oh, he's done that too. Oh, he's done that as well. Yeah. He's, you know, he's deleted the garage and turned it into a sound studio. He's written his own <laughs> he's written his own quotes all over the wall, you know, about how, you know, I want to play Madison Square Garden and sort of manifesting this version of his life that right. he's going he's gonna, to he's gonna, he's gonna be. Visualise, actualise, realise. All that, all that. All of that. Right. All of that. He lives it. Look, half of me thinks it's great and the other half probably at the time was just can't you just do it like everyone else does it? You know, can't you be quote-unquote normal? Just be my dad instead of trying to be the rock star. But, of course, I'm glad he found something else to direct his energy at because it is unending, the reserves he has. What you were saying before is that you were not all that keen initially at looking at how bad your dad was feeling at, at that terrible time. Mm. Was the same true about him for you? Do you think he was maybe not attending to what you were going through at that time? Oh, not... He definitely... You know, he would only want me to feel good and, you know, be well. But I just think I didn't, I wasn't able to articulate what I felt and therefore he probably didn't know what I was feeling just because I, I had no way of articulating it. Dad is very good at talking about how he's feeling and I'm less good at that um, or was definitely at the time. So he would have been only supportive if I'd asked him something, but I just didn't know what to say. I didn't know what to ask him or how to feel. And he was very much consumed with his new chapter of life. Not surprisingly, you know, he's gone through a huge adjustment. He's being Iggy Pop. He's getting on stage and ripping his gear off and having a great time and playing all these great gigs and I'm in Sydney. He wanted you to see those tapes and thought you might make something of them. And you have made something of them. Mm. And what does he think now when he sees himself in your film? Has he told you? He has. I showed him the film before we launched it. We sat alone together and watched it at my place. And he was clearly very affected by it. He loved it, you know. We were, he held my hand and gave me a hug and then gave me four pages of notes <laughs> about, <laughs> about, about stuff. Thanks, uh, that, Dad. Uh, thanks, Dad, yeah, about stuff that he... Right. And, he st you know, we still have very vibrant conversations about it and the stuff he doesn't agree with of, of my version of, of what's happened. And that's fine, you know. We, we, we do see things slightly differently. The film's obviously, from my perspective, 
not his, but it does deal with things that, yeah, he, he finds hard to accept, which, you know, I accept him <laughs> not agreeing with it. That's fine. But it has given us the ability to talk about him, which I think is the important bit. Ostensibly, it's a portrait of your dad and your larger family life, mm. the film you've made. But I also see it, and correct me if I'm wrong, as you kind of explaining yourself to your dad. You think that's true? I think so, yeah. I mean, it's great anyone sees a film in it, to be honest, because I just see a whole bunch of my life and I'm, I'm, I'm amazed that people, you know, get something else, else out of it. So it's great that people do see something in it. But I definitely was trying to explain how I was feeling to him and... Yeah, so it's, it's a hard one to answer, actually. Mm. What do you think your mum would have made of that film? She would probably have been... Uh, I'm not sure she would have thought that anyone would have thought it's interesting. It's just us, you know. It's just our family. It's just what's happened. But my, my dad's got very much the opposite opinion and, you know, in his words, you know, everyone is a superstar if they want to be, you know, and everyone's story is important and everyone's story is worth talking about. Um, and for him, that's certainly what he believes and I've come a little closer towards that I think you know from where my mum's on one end and he's probably on the other end and I'm somewhere in the middle <laughs> I think she would what she would have loved is seeing my kids in it I think that's what she would have loved about it James it's been so lovely speaking with you thank you so much thanks Richard it's great to be here you've been listening to a podcast of conversations with Richard Feidler for more Conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Hi, Miyuki Okiranta here. If you like stories that get at the heart of human experience, then I'd love it if you checked out my podcast, Earshot, where we eavesdrop on life as it's lived. I think I just held my dad's hand and just hoped that I was going somewhere safe. We're kicking off a new season and it's all about promises. Made, broken, kept and stretched. I couldn't promise that she would have a great life because she could never promise it to any child. But I promised that she would have a life and that I would look after her and be there for that life. His funding's been stripped. Like, stripped. I wanted to be metaphorically the dying person in the room. I wanted the members of parliament who were going to oppose this law to say it to my face. Just search for Earshot on the ABC Listen app and I'll catch you there. Love is great, but sometimes that's not enough. Promise me?